0: Luke chapter 2, and we'll commence our reading there at verse 25. Hear once again the word infallible, errant of our God. Behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And the same man was just and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Ghost was upon him. which thou hast prepared before the face of all people, a light to lighten the Gentiles and the glory of thy people Israel. And Joseph and his mother Mary marveled at those things which were spoken of him. And Simeon blessed them and said unto Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is set for the fall and rising again of many in Israel. And for a sign which shall be spoken against, yea, a sword shall pierce through thy own soul also, that the, hearts of, that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. And there was one Anna, a prophetess, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was of a great age and had lived with an husband seven years from her virginity. And she was a widow of about fourscore and four years, which departed not from the temple, but served God with fastings and prayers night and day. And she, coming in that instant, gave thanks likewise unto the Lord, and spake of all of him to all them that looked for redemption in Jerusalem, thus far the reading of God's word. And indeed, may he bless it to our hearing this morning. Beloved, before I come to our text this morning, I would say that um, this is perhaps a text, when we come to it, it does not strike us as being a deep, a challenging text. But I assure you it is. Uh, we know that because all of the word of God is a deep, really a bottomless deep. And as we come to our text this morning, because of that, uh, there are things that are solemn, uh, there are things that, that are thrilling, and, and there are things that should lead us to examination. But I want you to remember, beloved, as, even as we begin to look at these verses this morning, these are verses that hold forth to us Jesus Christ. They show us Jehovah, God the Son, Walking among sinners. And so, as we look at this text, beloved, we should remember that our gaze should never lift from Christ, even as we reflect on how one example is given to us in Scripture, how one believer is presented to us this morning. And that is precisely what we have. Anna, of course, is a believer who encounters the Lord Jesus Christ. You remember the context. It's the same context that we saw when we came to look at Simeon. This is before, of course, the ritual sacrifices are made for the cleansing of the child, Christ and Mary. As it were, Simeon and Anna both are standing at the gates of the temple and they both see Christ and Joseph and Mary. And Luke provides for us their response. And what's striking about this, of course, is that These are the only two. These are the only two that seem to recognize Christ coming into his temple. But we shouldn't miss either that Luke provides for us the reality that there were, there were witnesses. Even if they were at this time only Simeon, only Anna, even in Christ's state of humiliation, he would not leave the son without some witness to who he is, and to the work of redemption that he should accomplish. And so that's what we have. Anna is a believer. Anna is a witness to the Lord Jesus Christ, even as he comes into his temple. And because Anna and Simeon are so similar, it shouldn't surprise us that the text provides for us very similar details. Simeon's name, of course, is given. Then some moral or spiritual biography is provided. And then we're given an explanation of how they feature in this text. It's the case with Simeon, it's the case with Anna, as we see in our text this morning. And so what are we told of Anna? Well, as the, as the inspired writer provides for us this glimpse, he tells us that Anna was a prophetess. A word prophetess" in Scripture could mean a wife of a prophet. That's how it's used, for instance, in Isaiah 8:13. Or it can mean more. That is a woman who was a prophet. Uh, That was the case of Miriam in Exodus 15, Deborah in Judges 4, Huldah in 2 Kings 22. And for good reason, we could say that the same like examples could include Anna. Anna likely was a prophetess of the latter category. What's striking about the text is that this is something that Luke himself, again, writing under inspiration, does not dwell upon. He simply mentions that she was such. And as we hold this, as it corresponds to Luke's description of Simeon, we understand how this then functions. Why is it significant that Anna is a prophetess, one who walks so closely with the Lord, one who in the Old Testament is called, the prophets called the friends of God specifically? Well, friend, it reminds us, doesn't it, that the woman that we have in view here is a godly woman. Yes, a gifted woman, even extraordinarily, but a godly woman. Simeon was filled, you remember, with the Holy Ghost. Verse 25, here we have Anna, a prophetess, one favored by the Lord, and one we should expect to be a woman of great piety. We're told also that this woman is a daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. Now what's striking about this, of course, is that she belongs not to the family of Judahites, she belongs to a family of the northern tribes, that family that possessed the lands in the far northwesternmost part of the province. And so, what would have been called at that time Syro-Phoenicia or it even included the likes of Upper Galilee. She was a Phoenician, or even perhaps a Galilean. And we're told as well that she was a widow of about four scores and four years. Now, what's striking is in the text... Literally, the words are, she was a widow for all of 84 years. She was a widow for all of 84 years. Which then tells us, of course, that when Luke tells us that she was of a great age, she was older then, than even the time of her widowhood. Now, doing just some math to get us some context of what the Gospel writer is saying, if she's married at the youngest age, the Jewish law then allowed, which was 12 and a half years, and then she was widowed seven years afterward, she was 19 and a half when she was widowed. If you add to that the years of her widowhood, 84, she was somewhere between the years of 103 and 105. Now, friend, as we look at this text, strikingly, most scholars ancient and even modern, believe that's precisely what Luke is saying. The woman here that we have in view is somebody over 100 years old. Now, to put that in context, when she was widowed, if we've done our math correctly, Luke is telling us that she would have been 19 not only when her husband died, but strikingly, in her 19th year, that was the apex of the Judean Civil War. When she was 19, she would have been there as Alexander Janias, a Sadducee ruler, had executed 800 Pharisees, crucified them, slaughtered 6,000 people in the temple on the Feast of Tabernacles. She would have been 46 years old when Rome made Judah part of their territory. She was 65 years old when Julius Caesar required Jerusalem's walls to be rebuilt. She was 92 when Herod I began to rebuild the temple. This is Anna as she comes to us in our text. A woman who has seen much, a woman who has watched so many things come about, and a woman who has been bereaved through all. Now, that's her biography. What of her character? Well, the writer tells us that she departed not from the temple, but served God with fastings and prayers night and day. We're not supposed to understand here that she inhabited the temple. In fact, verse 38 tells us she's coming into the temple in the moment that we have in our text. The idea, though, is, is that she is incessant in her worship. When she is able, she is present. And she is present with fastings and prayers. She begins and she ends the day in this way. And then we're, we're given her response to Christ. The writer tells us that she gave thanks likewise unto the Lord and spake of him to all them that looked for redemption in Israel. The word likewise there reminds us that the kind of thanksgiving that Anna gives here is like unto that of Simeon. The two narratives should not be divided, of course. The writer is saying just as Simeon responded to Christ, so did Anna. And so Anna's response was one of worship, just as Simeon's was. Anna's response was of solemn praise to God, as Simeon's was. Now, as we hold all of these things together, these are just a few lines. But there is an incredible depth to them. In fact, the lines that we have are, really, we could probably spend weeks seeing all that the Gospel writer sets before us. But, But just for our time this morning, I want you to notice two things that these profound lines set before us. First of all, I want you to notice that the Gospel writer is very clear. This woman who gives testimony to Christ, this woman who is a witness to Christ in the temple, when so few else were, is a woman of great godliness, of tried and of proven piety. And of course, the function of that in the text is this, that that like Simeon, when she testifies of Christ, you and I should pay attention. She's not some religious lightweight, if you will. She's not a fair-weather friend of God. She's a genuine believer, committed to the cause and interest of God in the land. And when she testifies of Christ, the godly should hear. Demons, of course, would testify that Christ is the Son of God. Demons would even testify to the validity of the apostleship. But they're told to be silent. Why? Because God would have his truth adorned with godliness. And here you have that very truth. Those who bear witness to Christ in this moment in the temple are of great holiness. And Luke would have us know that at the onset. But friend, I'd also remind you too that in this text we have an example. Here we have a woman set before us like Simeon that should show us how one ought to respond to Christ. The Gospel writer has, been, has taken great pains to set before us not only the presence of Christ, but how men and women respond to the Christ who has come. Again, we then have Anna here as an example. But there's something even we can say beyond that. What's striking in this text is that Luke includes her as a number of a people. If you look back with me, look at Luke 2, starting there at verse 38. When she gave thanks to the Lord, she spake of him to all them that looked for redemption in Jerusalem. The sense in the original, it comes out in the English as well, is that she belongs to this part. There is a coterie of believers in Jerusalem whom Luke describes as being those who are waiting for the redemption of God. And Anna here is a representative of that body. She's not only an example then for you and I to emulate, but she is a representative of a particular class of individuals. To put it another way, have you, ever wondered, have you ever wondered what believers were doing? What they were like, genuine believers were like on the eve of the incarnation when they lived in a generation that was described as evil, untoward, faithless, and perverse? What were the godly doing at this moment when the church had reached its lowest point? Luke provides us a representative example. And it's Anna. She's an example for you and I to emulate, and she is also a window, as it were, by which we may see how the godly lived while they awaited Christ. How the godly lived in a time of great decline. And of course, beloved, that shows us something about ourselves, doesn't it? Holding all of these things together taking Anna as she is, an example and a vignette of piety among those who wait for redemption, do we not learn from here that zeal marks believers, especially in a defecting generation? Zeal marks believers, especially in a defecting generation. Now, friend, I, I am to be focusing here on Anna but my comments at the beginning are are still to be held true, that, that we need to be focused upon Christ, even as we look at this woman. And so while we will see her fervor, her faith, and the favor shown to her in this text, all must be kept with a firm gaze upon the Redeemer. And so we take up, first of all, the example of Anna as she demonstrates fervor in the text. Here we have a believer. Here we have one waiting for redemption. And what does she do? It says here, She departed not from the temple, but served God with fastings and prayers. The sense is is that, of course, as I said to you already, this is incessant. She's a woman who is continually set upon the worship of her God. And Luke is very careful to remind us of that. But what's striking in the text is that the sense? Is she has been doing this since her widowhood, since her widowhood, and again doing the math as we have that means from nineteen, from nineteen years of age to one hundred and three, she has been engaged in this work. Now the implications of that are striking. If you hold all together what we've said, just a very clear but close reading of the text. That means that she has left the west, northwesternmost part of the province in which her family lived. She came down as a 19-year-old widow, still in the prime of health. Still, when she could have been married to another, when she could have had a family of her own, still she left the home of her family to come to Jerusalem. In the prime of her youth, she dedicated herself to this work. And not only that, not only at her young age, at the moment of her widowhood, but then through her years, all the way through her widowhood, through those 84 years, the gospel writer tells us she has been in the temple. For 103 years, this woman, as it were, for the majority of that, she's been engaged in this work. And strikingly, she's been engaged in this work in spite of the great and gross defection of the land. She's been willing to part with family, willing at this time to devote her days to this work. And she's been willing to do it in the face of a godless people who approach the Lord with their lips but not with their hearts. Beloved, if you just read the text in front of you, that's precisely what the Gospel writer is saying. This is the kind of woman that we're encountering this morning. This is the representative of those who are waiting for redemption in Jerusalem. But take that moment just, just a bit further. Take that thought. Isn't it striking how the Gospel writer describes Anna and those who are like her? It's striking, he says here, they are those who looked. For redemption. Looked or waited for salvation. Does that strike you this morning? I really think it should. Because we immediately interpret that as, well, she's waiting for the Messiah. But that's not what the gospel writer says. He doesn't say these are people who are waiting for the first coming of Christ. Though no, that would have been true, no doubt. Luke describes these ones in ways that you and I should be described. I mean, this is precisely how the Apostle Paul describes Christians, isn't it? In Romans 8, he says, We are those who, we ourselves, groan within ourselves, waiting for the adoption, and note this, to wit the redemption of our body. And oh, are we supposed to be waiting for Christ? Well, the apostle says, still that's to be the case for the believer. The Lord direct your hearts into the love of God into the patient waiting for Christ. What's striking is Luke describes these people, not in the very specific way that we so quickly run to, but he describes these believers in ways that all believers in all times are so to be described. Does that strike you this morning? Beloved, well, it should. Especially if we remember that Anna is setting before us an example of those who wait for redemption. Now, the implication of that, beloved, then is this, isn't it? That if Anna was a woman marked by zeal, then all of those awaiting redemption. Should be marked by zeal. And remember, beloved, there is a real connection between zeal and this kind of waiting. I think this is something we quickly forget, but we really just need to look briefly at the word of God and we'll see that this is all through it. Take Christ's words. The violent take the kingdom of heaven by force, Matthew 11. The prophet Amos, Woe to them that are at ease in Zion. Or take Revelation 2 and 3. In his seven letters to the churches, Christ says this, To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the tree of life. To him that overcometh shall not be heard of the second death. To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the hidden manna. To him that overcometh, I will not blot out his name out of the book of life. To him that overcometh, will I grant to sit with me in my throne, even as I also overcame and been set down with my father in his throne. Note how the Christians are described. They are those who are overcoming. They are those who are not at ease. They are those who are violent even. In other words, beloved, the scriptures hold out that in order for us genuinely to be believers, we must be zealous. It is impossible to be a genuine believer and not to be possessed of the kind of zeal that we have in our text. Friend, I think it's necessary for me at this point just to stop before we proceed. This text is challenging because it wages war ruthless war against that thought that is so prevalent today, that one can be possessed of this zeal, and it have no impact on their lives. This text shows us that that's simply not the case. She who is waiting for the redemption of Israel is a woman who is marked, genuinely marked, by that waiting. It has influenced her life incredibly and beloved that's the first thing that i want us to see this morning how did it influence this life this woman who is so zealous and so constant what was the external form that this zeal takes we're told in the text she departed not she departed not from the temple In other words, she was incessant in attending attending the ordinances. Now, beloved, again, reading the text as we should, as it is communicating to us history and remembering all that's gone before, here are some implications. First of all, she's done this in spite of her great age. In spite of all the difficulties and the pains that might come with that, she's been constant in it. She will not depart. But then secondly, friend, we can't miss this either. If we take this account and we remember what has gone before, she was required to go to the northwesternmost part of the province by Rome just months before. She was required to make a 200-mile journey so that she could be taxed as well. And you remember, the Roman taxation was unique in that. It was not just heads of families that were required to be taxed. Rome was the first empire on record to require widows, mothers, and fathers, heads of home, and all in the home to be taxed. Which means a very good inference from the text is Anna has just made that journey, and she has just returned. And where is she? She's back in the temple. 103, 105 years old. An incredible journey. And she will not depart from the ordinances of the gospel. I mean, her sentiment, obviously, perhaps getting ahead of myself, is just, but one thing have I desired of the Lord, says the psalmist. That will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple, Psalm 27. I mean, isn't Anna a picture of that? Just reading the text in its context. She's a wonderful picture of that very sentiment. And what was she doing while she was in the temple? We're told that she was engaged in prayers and fastings. Now friend, the prayers we understand, but, but why the fastings? And why so incessantly? The Pharisees had their public fasts, but the public fasts of the Pharisees in the first century were very, very, very formulaic. In the first century, Pharisees were very much given to praying and fasting, only in ter- and only in terms of public calamity. And so, if the harvest was to come and a poor harvest seemed to be on the horizon, they would engage, call for a public fast. Or if there was some kind of political calamity awaiting them, the Pharisees would call for a fast. Anna fasts incessantly. Wonder why when there seems to be no public calamity as incessant as Anna's fasting. And we're told then that she's engaged in this practice day and night. Even the Pharisees don't come up to what we see in this text. She was more constant in these things than even they. And friend, as we close this first point, the application, first of all, is this shows us that those who are waiting for redemption, those who are looking for redemption, are not passive. We often think, don't we, that waiting upon the Lord is a passive thing. But I remind you the words of one minister just centuries ago. He says, waiting on God is one thing. Waiting for God is quite another. The first is right and the last is wrong. We wait on him by such things as prayer. In other words, what you find here is a woman who is waiting looking for redemption, and what does this make her do? It doesn't lead her to passivity. It urges her to make use of the means of grace. To make diligent use of the means of grace. It's a striking thing, isn't it, that this is the representative that the Spirit of God gives to us from this generation and gives to us in the greatest detail. A woman who waited for redemption and gave herself earnestly To the use of these means. Now, beloved, if that is her fervor, we do, of course, need to come to her faith. And that brings us to verse 38. The Gospel writer tells us that when she saw Christ, she gave thanks. She gave thanks, numbered among those who were looking for redemption. Now, friend, the implication is as she looks to Christ, she sees in Christ the self same thing Simeon sees. That he is the embodiment of that redemption longed for. He is Redeemer himself. But allow me to move perhaps a step forward. Friend, as we look at this, that means then that she is a woman who looks by faith to Christ. She is one who sees Christ by faith. I don't think I have to prove this to you, given what we said about Simeon, but allow me just to explain again why that has to be a necessary implication. Contemplate the Christ whom Anna beholds in this text. Oh, she sees a baby, 41 years, 41 days old. The one who is the redemption so longed for comes to her first of all, carried in the arms of his parents. The one whom she says, is the Lord whom we've desired coming into his temple, this one is visibly, apparently dependent upon the nurturing of another. Oh, and when he comes into his temple, where are the seraphim and the cherubim? That Isaiah beheld, when Isaiah looked at the temple and saw the holy God enthroned above... None of that's there. The Christ whom she beholds, she takes to be redemption because she sees him with the eyes of faith. And so, beloved, that teaches us that this woman truly is indeed a believer. She's one who eyed Christ, not just with the eyes of the body, but more importantly, with the eyes of faith. But friend, that does lead us back to that question of the fasting The fasting. It may not be intuitive as to how these two connect, but but allow me to flesh that out a bit further. As I said to you already, Pharisees fasted because of public calamity. But here we read in our text that this woman is given of her own accord to fasting very, very frequently. We need to ask the question, why? What public evil is she seeing? She she's fasting, according to the law of the Pharisees, that she, it requires her to be in the temple so incessantly. A friend, of course, Judea faced all kinds of difficulties, but nothing that required this kind of devotion. But make no mistake, there was a public evil that she saw. Beloved, the public evil, the private evil that she saw, of course, was sin. Striking is in the Pentateuch, in the first five books of the Bible, fasting is not at all mentioned with regard to the worship of God. That doesn't come to us until, until Judges 20, when Israel approaches the tabernacle fasting because of their sin. And beloved, what really is the case is the constant kind of fasting that we have in this text. It has no bearing on public calamity as that which flows from genuine humiliation. Humiliation, yes, in terms of one sense of corporate guilt. Friend, you can't think of corporate guilt without thinking of private guilt, rightly. And one should not think of private guilt without also thinking of corporate guilt as well. What we have in this text is a woman who is filled with faith. And what way does this faith manifest? Fasting and humiliation. Humiliation. A brokenness not just over temporal problems, but a brokenness of something that is deep. A brokenness over sin. I mean, that is what fasting is. The idea behind fasting is the affliction of one's soul. It's the etymology of the word. Friends, see then, here Anna's faith. She is one manifestly humbled. She is one who is willing to afflict her soul and to do so regularly. And this is the character, says Luke, of one who is waiting for redemption. Her faith is this. The prophet says in Ezekiel 36, Then shall ye remember your own ways, and your doings that were not good, and shall loathe yourselves in your own sight for your iniquities and for your abominations. That, beloved, is the kind of faith that's on display in our text. Note what the prophet says. You shall loathe yourselves in your own sight for your iniquities and your abominations. We don't talk about that, do we? Beloved, we don't talk about these things today. I mean, these are foreign to us largely, aren't they? Luke presents this to us as an example of one who's waiting for redemption. The gospel, the, the, the prophet that I read to you, Ezekiel 36, is speaking of what happens when God's grace moves among a people. This is a mark of God's grace, this kind of humiliation. And then take this, beloved. Take the thought that she does this while she's in the temple. In the scriptures, you have folks fasting in their chambers. Take David, for example. They, They don't need to go to the tabernacle or to the temple. One could fast, even in the old covenant age, without going to the temple. But Luke tells us, Anna goes to the temple. Why does she go to the temple? And she goes there daily, the gospel writer tells us. What does she see there? What takes place in the temple? Morning and evening, there would be two burnt offerings. There would be two meat offerings. And perhaps, depending on how you read the history, if it wasn't corrupted, there was supposed to still be two drink offerings as well. But in between those morning and evening sacrifices, the bulk of the day in the temple was given to dealing with sin and trespass offerings. That was the primary employment of the priests. When Anna and the worshipers of God would go, that was the primary thing that they would see. As the hours went on, it would be one sacrifice made after another, primarily burnt and trespass, sorry, primarily sin and trespass offerings. That's what she saw in the temple. That's what she saw incessantly at the temple. Friend, doesn't that teach us that this is a woman then who knows about propitiation? As she's fasting, as she's humbled for her sins, she knows that which the sacrifices typify. She knows experientially and from the heart she needs another to be burnt wholly by the wrath of God. That she needs someone else to deal with her sins. When she goes to the temple, it is a gospel in blood and in fire presented to her. And isn't it striking then that that's where she chooses to go for her fasts? And then friend, isn't it striking That when she comes into the temple this day, when Christ is presented, she sees him as Simeon saw him redemption itself. That's a striking thing, isn't it? This woman, for really, for the duration of her life, was so accustomed to seeing the sacrifices of God made out for sin for public and for private transgression. And yet when she sees this child, she says, this is he. He who will procure all the sacrifices pointed toward. This is the one for whom I must give thanks. This is the one who I must notify all of those who are looking for redemption. Because it is he to whom these sacrifices pointed. It's a striking thing, isn't it? She looks to the person of Christ and manifestly, beloved, when she looked at the sacrifices, she did not see those as an end in themselves then. For the century that she lived, for the multitude of offerings that she witnessed, it says in this text very clearly that she ever eyed the one whom they pointed to. When she used the means of grace she looked to Christ and then when Christ comes into his temple it is no difficulty for her to see in him all things that she ever hoped or expected. Beloved, I think there's there's a real application from that isn't there. This is a woman who is obviously not going about this work without faith. She's a woman who's not using the means of grace that God has given to the church mindlessly. She is a woman who was quite clear that as she looked to the means, she looked through them to the Christ whom they indicated. This is not a woman who simply was, had a penchant for watching religious ritual. This is not a woman who simply made it a routine to go about religious activities. This text shows us she was a woman quite ready to receive Christ himself. She was one who looked through the means to behold Christ. This is the character of one who waits. Beloved, do you come to the worship of God looking for Christ or just delighting in the means? Are you one who's looking for Christ this morning? Are you one who is humbled this morning? One who is eager to get something of Christ or are you here for ritual's sake or because this is a pastime that you find acceptable? That sentiment, friend, is very different than Anna's in our text. But as we close, friend, I want you to notice this. We're given these words. That as she saw Christ, she gave thanks likewise unto the Lord and spake of him. Now, friend, this requires, I think, just a bit of explanation. She gives thanks to God. And I've already described to you the Christ whom she beholds. The infant Christ. The Christ in his estate of humiliation. The Christ that no one else seems to recognize. This is the Christ Anna sees and gives thanks for. She rejoices in. That's, of course, the sense of the text, isn't it? This is one Anna is rejoicing at this moment. And I think when we read the scriptures, we say, well, of course she is. She's seeing Christ. But friend, we're reading the scriptures mindlessly if we forget that she rejoices primarily through the eyes of faith and not the eyes of sight. The Christ who was before her was, according to the accounting of the world, nothing else than just another child. But Christ in the eyes of faith, an object of great rejoicing, fills her with joy when so many others neglect so many others are simply undeterred, unmoved by the sight. There is an extraordinary aspect of the favor that Elizabeth Anna was shown here, isn't there? In this moment in redemption, she sees the incarnate Christ. And of course, in our generation, we don't. But there is an ordinary aspect of her joy in this text as well. And that ordinary aspect is that which she saw In faith. She enjoyed Christ by faith. And beloved, that too is to be a mark of the believer today. Jesus Christ says, Peter, whom having not seen ye love, in whom though now ye see him not yet believing, ye rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, even the salvation of your souls. Anna's rejoicing is not to be restricted to the first century. All who see Christ by faith as Anna saw Christ by faith are so described by Peter as being rejoicing, of being rejoicing people, a people of joy unspeakable and full of glory. And so, friend, what we have here is a woman, a woman who enjoyed Christ when all of those around her were feeding on ashes. In an age of defection, in an age of declension, she could still enjoy and rejoice in Christ, though so few around her could. It's a striking thing, then, this text. I want you to notice just a few things as we close. I said to you at the beginning, there are solemn things that this text holds out to us, and I think that there are. This is the example of one who waits upon the Lord whom the Holy Ghost describes as waiting for redemption, just as he describes ourselves. And here's how the Gospel writer brings her to us as a representative. She's one who is zealous. One who is incessant in everything. And that prompts the question, and friend, as as your pastor, I have to set this before you. As much as this text sets it before myself. Who are we more like? Are we like those who are at ease in Zion? Amos 6 1 says, To them belong woe. Or are we like mourners in Zion, like Anna? Because to them, the prophet Isaiah promises blessing. Woe to those that are at ease. Blessing to those who are mourners. Beloved, there is no middle ground. You are either one or the other this morning. You are either like Anna, or, beloved, you are like those who are around her, maybe perhaps attending the means of grace, but not taking hold of Christ. Are we at ease, or are we mourners in Zion? And that raises the question, right, doesn't it, of Matthew 25. Which of the two categories of virgins do we belong to? Those who watch, like Anna watches, or those who don't? I think, friends, sometimes we forget. We forget that the work of grace does something real in the hearts of men. And yes, the failings of God's people are deep, And yes, often the failings of God's people are sometimes even surprising to themselves. But when the scriptures speak of the godly, they are still described in these terms. They are described as those who are possessed of a holy violence and zeal. Those who are not at ease. Those who are eager and set at every point to seek their God. And so, friend, are we doing that? Are we seeking Christ? And are we seeking Christ in the means? Anna did. And this marked her as a woman waiting for redemption. Do we? But friend, I also want you to notice that there is comfort that is to be derived from this text. First of all, of course... This is a woman who waited 100 years, the majority of 100 years, upon her God. And what was her inestimable privilege? To behold Christ in an incredible way. To see Christ in a way that is altogether shocking. Striking, I suppose, when you look at even the name of her father. I don't know how much we can make of this, but, but you remember in verse 36... She's described as the daughter of Phanuel. That's the Hellenized version of the Greek word, Peniel, which of course comes to us from Genesis 32. Peniel is that place that Jacob names. And he tells us this. He names it thus because there he saw God face to face. Again, I don't know how much we can make of it. But isn't it striking that here Anna... Anna can say that she fulfilled her father's name. She sees God the Son face to face. The one whom Israel wrestled with. Well, now she has seen him herself. And beloved, if you are those who wait, if you are those who wait upon the Lord, you too will fulfill that name. Remember Job's words. I know that my Redeemer liveth, and that he shall stand at the latter day upon the earth, and though my skin worms destroy this body, yet in my flesh shall I see God, whom I shall see for myself, and mine eyes shall behold, and not another, though my reins be consumed within me. It's a, a vignette, a small snapshot our text, of the very thing that Job expects. And all those who wait truly upon the Lord. Beloved, that is their promise. And so, beloved, the exhortation is really fourfold. Peter tells us those who are redeemed, ultimately they are saved scarcely. The righteous scarcely are saved. What he means by that is they are saved through all kinds of difficulties, and they are saved by God's grace through all kinds of temptations. And this fact should drive us, beloved, by exhortation to be like Anna. If that is the case, the use of the means of grace, oh friend, we should make ample use of them. And so children, children, this is, by the world's standard, a time for you to play. And play and recreation are good in themselves. But don't neglect this most important thing. Now is the time to be asking. Asking your parents about sin. This evening, this afternoon, is the time for you to be asking, what about Jesus? And what about salvation in him? And why do I need it? This is the time to be seeking and to be waiting for redemption. Young adults... Teenagers. Folks, right now you are told by the world and even in the church, we're not good at this, are we? You need to be so forward focused. Think only about your career and your spouse and all of those things. Well, but look at an Anna just for a moment. Not all are called to singleness, not all are called to perpetual widowhood like Anna. But at nineteen she dedicated herself. To seeking the Lord in earnest. This is the time to set your focus on those things first and foremost. In your, in your teenage years and as a young adult, these are the times to be zealous. Adults, parents, you have so many worldly concerns. But beloved, look at Anna. She, of course, had to have a living herself. But how did she prioritize that living? She had to have money to pay for the sacrifices that she herself would bring. But you see, friends, she worked that she might worship. Where are our priorities ourselves? The exhortation in the text is very simple. Make the priority Anna's priority. Perhaps there are things that keep you from uh, from the means of grace, and those are legitimate in themselves, but the text at least asks the question, are they legitimate? Can things be done? The friend finally, take older saints here. Here is a woman who walked with the Lord for so many years, and how gracious is God to her. Friend, allow that to be an encouragement to you even even this afternoon. None who wait upon the Lord will be ashamed at all. Those decades of service to the Lord, the Lord often minded. And here you have wonderfully for the rest of the year's picture of the Lord's grace to one who waited faithfully upon the Lord. May that be for an encouragement and exhortation this evening. Amen.